0: Hello and welcome to Professor Meets Students, a new podcast about academic research. Please read us on iTunes or subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: I'm Dr. Bruce Littleboy from the University of Queensland, I'm a senior lecturer here, a former student of the place since 1973 or so, I did honours here and my PhD here as well.
0: Great. Let's go back, all the way back to what first sparked your interest in economics.
1: My I did economics at school and it didn't greatly impress me uh, in that I was better at other subjects. But when I enrolled in law at UQ, I thought straight law would be too boring, what will I do? And I wanted to do a kind of philosophy, politics, economics degree here. We have it, have one now, in the last year or so, but we didn't back then. So I had to roll my own. So you start with a law, and then you, you've got a few free electives, so you fit Uh, courses that uh, have a bit of political philosophy and economics in them. Back then you could do that within the economics school. We had political economy, we had someone who somehow found his way into the economics faculty who really wanted to teach political philosophy and go through the texts of Plato and Aristotle and so in fact was able to uh, do an alternative political economy economics degree uh, satisfying the technical rules of the Econ.
0: And what led you on from that to consider doing research?
1: Again, by increment, I thought I would do honours in economics because my grades in economics were better than my grades in law. It turned out, by the way, that in the 1970s there was a flood of people doing law because universities were free then. Uh, So everybody decided that they would move uh, into the middle class uh, escalator via doing a law degree. And so they started to put essentially quotas by failing 40% of the class, Uh, but they didn't tell anyone that. So I was starting to get demoralised That suddenly I was three years into a law degree and failing courses which I thought I'd robbed home easily. So I thought, oh, I'll take a year off and do honours in economics. And I enjoyed that, so I thought, well, I'll rather than go back and finish off law, I'll do a master's in economics, one year, and I thought, well, this project's rather interesting, it could turn into a PhD, and law courses go stale after 10 years, so if you do this slow PhD plus all the other stuff, you decide, well, do I want to go back and re-enrol in intro law? No. So that's how it happened.
0: And what was your PhD on that so interested you?
1: Uh, My PhD was on interpretations of Keynes, and we were lucky at UQ in that it was a relatively Keynesian organisation when Keynes was somewhat out of fashion in the 1970s and 80s. And UQ was regarded as a bit of the deep north, a bit old fashioned, and aren't keeping up with the times. But we were keeping up with sophisticated interpretations of Keynes that were becoming prevalent in the 1970s. One of those interpreters who wrote in the 1960s uh, was a fellow called Axel Leonhufjord and his PhD got turned into a book and my PhD essentially was about his PhD.
0: Okay, that does sound a bit, (laughs) maybe, messy or confusing for sure. Um, and what then led you on to go into teaching?
1: There, again, there were push and pull factors. Uh, teaching happened again by chance because I was in the tea room with a not quite finished PhD, likely to go back to La Trobe where I was a tutor but couldn't get enough time to finish my PhD so I took six months off going back to UQ. and Then macroeconomics economics, uh, lecturers started to die. And no one suspects me to this day, but uh, one died and then another died and the head of school was sitting there in the tea room and going, who are we going to uh, uh, appoint as a lecturer? And I went, (coughs) pass me the sugar, would you? And oh, you'd you'd make a good uh, uh, appointment. So he put me in for 18 months. Now that means that you get to teach those particular courses, the core, intro, micro and macro courses. And so I got dropped in or parachuted in to a teaching-oriented position quite quickly. I seem to be able to speak for the most part in complete sentences. So, and if you're halfway decent at the job, you get the job again. So I've been teaching intro macro for about 30 years on and off. I've probably taught it at least 20 times which gives rise to a degree of obsessionality, I think, about details which some students uh, are disinclined to approve of.
0: And do you find that you spend most of your time teaching or do you still have time to do some research?
1: I spend the bulk of my time teaching and or working on teaching materials. The textbook is an enormous soak of time. PowerPoint slides... uh, I look at the, uh, the animations and the timings and I go, no, that's 0.25 of a second too fast and so on. Well, that arrow needs to be moved two pixels, that type of stuff. And, of course, students don't notice or appreciate that. I've never had anyone say, look, uh, your pixel work is the best in the business. So, uh, but yes, uh, research is what it happens after the teaching stuff is out of the way, which is almost the reverse, of you'll find, of the modern academic who has pressure to do research and finds teaching an annoying distraction from doing what they feel they, they're supposed to be doing.
0: And what do you think this says about you, that you have almost an obsession about teaching?
1: Uh, probably have obsessions about lots of things. Indeed, academics have to be somewhat well, if not monomaniacal, at least not uh, too multi-maniacal. They focus on a certain limited number of things. So, my hobbies are chess, and that's it. Or reading. And they're all introspective things you focus on, and they're all mind-dominant.
0: Yeah, I can see, you know, having that sort of logic from chess definitely helps. To with that sort of logic that you need to follow through with economics.
1: Conceivably so. People say that uh, chess players uh, are good mathematicians, or mathematicians are good chess players. I was never a great mathematician. I always preferred words and logic, but chess is about logic as well.
0: Just before we get into a bit more of your methods of teaching and your research, Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give to a university student who's starting out, considering that you teach them particularly?
1: I wonder whether I can recommend to students to do economics anymore because the program is now so different from what it was that attracted me to the discipline in the first place. But if you want to be successful and have technical competencies that will take you far and will give you the option at least of doing good for the world in working for the World Bank or for the Treasury and saving the country from... uh, violent fluctuations and all that sort of stuff yes there is some scope for the ideologically minded altruistic student but i think nowadays we're so immersed in technique for its own sake that you have to be that sort of person i think to be attracted to economics the higher up you go the worse it gets so i I recommend to everyone that they study first first year economics But how far up you go, I think that's the low-hanging fruit, and I'm not sure exactly when it starts to turn uh, sour and unreachable.
0: Okay, (laughs) thank you. Um, Considering I'm an economics student myself, but Mm. yes, okay.
1: (laughs) Well, you can verify that independently. It's all a matter of subject selection.
0: Yes, I definitely agree with that. And again, before we just move on. a book recommendation, either something that influenced you or impacted you or just interested you?
1: Well, I'll go with a, a recent one, which I found interesting, and it's on my desk, and it's a, I've referred to it in a in a PowerPoint presentation I'm delivering to a teaching conference uh, in Sydney in a little while's time. And it's a debate, but it's got big names on it, Stephen Pinker, Matt Ridley, Alain de Bottin, and Malcolm Gladwell had a debate about essentially whether humankind's best days are ahead of it or whether uh, there are horrible risks on the horizon and da-da-da-da and it's a nice little crisp debate from the monk debates and it summarises a lecture of mine in Econ 1020 and although I've got plenty of stuff in the Econ 1020 lecture already there's always new stuff coming along. So there's always some new dot point to put in there. And by the way, it's really hard to get rid of an old dot point to make way for a new one.
0: So yeah, I'll have to pick up a copy of it. It was, do humankind's best days lie ahead? Correct. Yes. All right, it does sound interesting. And like you said, there's some big names, particularly if you mm. are in, interested in the economics field. Uh, so going on a little bit, we've already talked a little bit about teaching methods. Um, i noticed that you'd written an article a little while ago about uh, picking past tutors
1: mm-hmm. well that's again something that emerges by accident from what you do because you teach first year stuff you end up being on committees to select the tutors and then you all sit around rather bored as you ask the uh, the tutor the applicants why do you want to be a BA tutor and they go because I have a passion for da-da-da-da. Everyone has a passion for whatever it is they're applying for. And uh, I'm surprised that that cliche is still so popular among students. I think you should avoid it. I think you should say, I, I'm deeply interested in anything but the word passion. Well, we decided that it was just theatre you sitting opposite me and me asking you expected questions and you giving me the expected answers. So we changed the way we select our tutors. And we already select pretty good people, but now we've gone from good to very good by putting people around a table to see how they interact with each other. Because tutors are supposed to be able to interact with their students, right? So it was Carl's principal, Carl Sherwood's principal insight... Uh, why don't we actually select people for what we actually want them to do? Well, when you put it like that, well, yeah. And everyone was bored out of their brains uh, with the complete time-wasting exercise of interviewing 50 people and then choosing 45 of them. So so that's for the origins of that article, and it's essentially, well, Carl has probably already told you the exciting story of what happens inside the interview room. but. We give people a a newspaper article and we try to find out whether they're natural economists uh, or not, pull out the economics from this and uh, put it in a form that uh, students will be able to access. We just see how people go and whether they get into fistfights or something that's probably bad, Uh, or whether you just sit there stupidly in a daze. So a lot of people select select themselves or shoot themselves through the foot.
0: Yeah, considering I have gone through that tutorial uh, selection process, I I found it definitely very interesting. Mm. Not what I expected, but it did test me, which I kind of liked, Mm -hmm. Um, and I did get hired, so that went well. Um, So moving on then to your teaching methods in lectures, Um, what have you found over the last 30 years?
1: I find that I'm probably an outlier teacher, and the teaching evaluations are deeply divided in that I'll, I'll get ones and I'll get fives. And whereas people like Carl just gets the fours and fives, I get the fives and the twos and ones. So it's uh, it may be that there is a sense that people just get cues from me that I'm an old-fashioned sort of person, who thinks that, well, you're lucky to be in my classroom, frankly, because I'm pretty good and I know a lot. So just sit back, enjoy, strap yourself in. Whereas other people want, well, is this on the exam or not? And there's a growing tendency at universities to frame the lecture material and the tutorials and everything to what's assessed on the exam. So tutorials are becoming practice sessions for exam questions. In my day, in the 1970s, tutorials had their own freestanding existence. You'd actually read stuff for a tutorial and talk about that stuff, and there might be an exam question on it. They'd they'd make a point of making sure that something from the tutorials was directly on the exam, but the purpose of tutorials was not exam preparation. And that has been lost, I think. Another aspect of my teaching, I think, is that I'm relatively visual in that pictures appear and disappear and dot points appear and disappear and things get circled and things change colour. Because I'm trying to attract people's attention while you're there sitting in the lecture theatre. A lot of people think that lecture notes or the slides that you are presented should be what you sit at home and study for the exam. Now, my slides are pretty useless for that purpose. And when people go okay it's a couple of days before the exam I'll just download Bruce's slides and then I'll work through it and they get the shock of their lives and then they take it out on me but well it's 30 years and I haven't changed so uh, if uh, I think I'm doing something good I stick with it and if I can accommodate p- people who complain I do but there comes a point where I can't do conflicting things I can't appeal to the strong students, the people who like me. I'm I'm worried that if I move too far to the other end, I'll just be just like any other lecturer. And the people who think, wow, this is really good, uh, will no longer have at least one lecturer that they enjoyed while they were at UQ. So Carl
0: was telling um, us about the online of his course now do you feel like your course might move towards more online
1: lectures? Um, Only at the point of a bayonet Uh, well heads of school and administrators like that sort of thing Um, I'm used to courses involving reading and listening to smart people and taking notes and reading debates whereas the modern method is to appeal to students to contribute to the class itself and oftentimes they have little to contribute and the online experience to me is a way of cutting up the course into bite sized pieces for the convenience of students who are harried by many distractions and it's a bit like microwave oven cooking. I mean, it's something you have to do, that you say, well, there was a time when there was slow food, and we had proper cooked food, and I'm nostalgic for those old days, although I accept the realities that the world is moving in that direction.
0: Do you feel like this method of teaching that economics has taken on, is it moving more towards the sciences than away from the humanities, as the humanities still teaches, you know, with the specific Mm. tutorials in mind, like you were saying?
1: Well, I think the university has long since ceased to be a university. That's true around the world. They're now multiversities, where there's acute specialisation, and you don't think about big picture anymore. So you may recall what I said earlier about I had a big picture interest in what might be called an arts liberal education. Uh, the politics, philosophy and economics. I didn't view economics as uh, social physics, as it's now viewed. Uh, We studied Thomas Hobbes and his view that economics was social physics, but we stood back from it. We didn't just accept it as a given. I'm sure if you went up to the econometricians and the mathematicians, they wouldn't be particularly aware that what they're doing stems from the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes.
0: And now, moving away from all that, mm-hmm. um, you wrote a book recently with Dr. Peter Earle mm-hmm. on Shackle. Would you like to talk about what you found there?
1: Yes, uh, Peter Earle is also one of the relative outliers in the school, in that he takes a broader intellectual interest in the social sciences and to a lesser extent, actually, probably than I do in the humanities. But we were both attracted to an economist or a philosopher of economics, George Shackle, because he's, his life is a running critique of the way mainstream economics has evolved. So in the 1950s, he was saying, look, if you're not careful, it'll evolve in these directions. And that, of course, is exactly what has happened. And the profession Is aware that macroeconomics in particular is not a deterministic science. The global financial crisis and various crises in the 1990s and 2000 dot-com bubble, Asian crisis, convinced more and more people that there was something fishy going on and that economics wasn't really studying what actually happened. George Shackle argued that there is something called radical uncertainty or deep uncertainty, means not only that people are confused or in the dark, he actually took it a step further, that the future is not there waiting for you to discover with your econometric and statistical analyses. The future is for you to make with your own decisions now. So it's not as though you have optimal decisions that you have to discover. There is no optimal decision already waiting in the dark for you to find. The future is empty for you to create and that is not mathematisable, so far as I'm aware. You may be able to deal with it in terms of emergent complexity in physics or something clever like that, but certainly you're not going to get there using the standard ways of thinking that economists use, that orthodox economists use.
0: Do you feel like a lot of students come into an economics course thinking that it's going to be all about deterministic kind of and that sort of
1: thing i wonder if they're so sophisticated i wonder if they come into the class with any expectations at all uh, when i do marketing for the economics degree uh, at, on open days i tend to have a bit of survey of what you think economics is about and people go banking or, money uh some will go supply and demand and some will go oh, diagrams and equations, as though they've done it at school and they're really sick of it. But uh, So economics does not have the product identity that, say, marketing or law or, or physics does. You have a picture in your head of what the, those people do. But beyond the thinking of someone wearing a, a dark suit, and accountants wear dark suits, uh, what does an economist actually do? People don't seem to know. And a lot of people, I think, come with the uh, presupposition that it's really a twin to business studies. Whereas when I tell them, actually, guys, it's a social science, some people are almost taken aback. It's unfortunately a social science that's more science than social, uh, the way it's evolved. Uh, whereas I'd like to push it back more to the, with the emphasis on the word social.
0: Do you feel like UQ might move, and other universities might move, in the direction of more of a social science rather than moving towards the science side even more?
1: I think that the only hope for that is if people who are disenchanted with economics switch to do arts and there's some kind of political economy program in some other faculty or other faculties that study the history of the discipline... Economics um, conceals its past in almost a a Stalinist fashion where people are removed from the photographs and airbrushed out. And whatever we think now, that is the best of all possible thoughts. And when you take a longer view and you realise that today's convention is tomorrow's stupidity, uh, you start to say, well let's look at the discipline from a 50 or 100 year time frame and look at the good and bad ideas that we've seen over that time. Now in economics you can't do that anymore, the courses have just been shut down, so you may have to go to history or to, uh, work to arts faculties to get that sort of information. Even in an economics degree, remember you've got one third of your course in electives But so many students are Conventional, they'll go, oh, I I need to put job-relevant stuff in. Uh, I need to do, oh, I don't know, marketing or international this and that, Uh, seeming to think that uh, employers want clones. Maybe they want people who know a bit of, uh, well, English literature or something that sets them apart from the cookie-cutter graduates we seem to be producing in large quantities.
0: And finally, just returning back to Shackle, you said that he found, um, you know, or he predicted the way that economics would move. What do you think about his method of finding that?
1: His method was essentially introspective, and that's why uh, he didn't catch on so much because he argued that you, there's no point taking past data and putting a regression line through it and think you know something, because the more the world fits into a certain pattern, the more likely it is that that pattern will be, come under pressure to break down automatically. So the more often that people think that the price of a share is settled on some equilibrium, when you think of share markets, they're the balance of opposing forces. There are some people who think the price will go up, and some people think the price will go down. But the more price stays the same, people are going to say, well, this is ridiculous, and move on. And it's a matter of chance as to whether the people who expect the price to go up quit first, and then the price sinks, <laughs> or whether the, the price pessimists quit, leave the market first, and they go, oh, well, there's no point waiting for the share to fall. Let's, let's go and do something else. And then the price rises. So Shackle thought that the notion of equilibrium in markets, particularly asset and financial markets, is a fallacy. Equilibrium must break down under the force of their own logic.
0: And I know there's this notion of path dependence. Do you feel that Shackle um, was kind of using that as a method that you know you can't know what's going to happen if all you have is the past data? Past data just tells
1: you what happened in the past. Yes, it's almost the opposite. It's a case of path non dependence. Uh, of course, there is inertia in a system. The system will operate with inertia until it is disturbed. But Shackle argued that disturbances and turbulence are normal events, uh, or at least you have to expect surprises. And you can't just say there's a 10% chance that this will happen. Something will happen that you had not imagined could happen still less had you confidently placed a probability on it. And that's why a lot of the exercises in financial models and economic models where you pretend that you're in a casino you say there's a point 0.1 chance of this happening and a point one chance of that happening, the mathematical expectation is this, and in the long run and on average I'll make five dollars a week. Well he argues that a lot of life you've got one go at something. Uh, if you want to get married or something. You don't get married a 100 times and on average get it right and then learn, actually, I quite like that sort of person, and then you converge on average to that sort of person. That's not the way life works. If you're making big, irreversible, crucial decisions, different criteria for choice apply from the ones that you're taught in Carl Sherwood's class. Nothing personal, Carl.
0: Alright so let's finish up with one last thing. What would you like to look at in the future as part of either research or teaching or something like
1: that? Okay I have a long-standing fantasy that before I retire I'm going to write a paper on was Adolf Hitler rational and you read about the guy and you get into his head and and you think well was he rational or not? And then you ask yourself what do economists mean by rational? Because in economics you can be a rational drug addict, you can be a rational psychopath, uh, so long as your means are effective in the pursuit of your goals. And whether Hitler was rational in the pursuit of his goals is actually a very interesting question, because if you again you can't line up a hundred Hitlers and repeat the experiment a hundred times and see what the average Hitler did. You've got one Hitler who was faced with a unique set of circumstances. What do I do? Do I attack Stalingrad or not? You might say afterwards, well, that was pretty dumb. But in economics, you're allowed to make mistakes. And again, you can't say that if we can't run experiments that if you'd attacked Stalingrad 50 times, you would have won only 15 times and therefore bad idea, Adolf. There was no data to that effect. So how do you say that somebody's rational or not if when you place yourself in the same position, you would find yourself tempted to do similar things? You'd find yourself amenable to persuasion to do almost anything. And that's... Well, how you get a paper out of that? I don't know.
0: I think that's probably the most interesting point I've had to end on. Um, I hope you do write it. And if you do, definitely let me know because that sounds really interesting, at least just on the thought process that would go into working out whether he was rational or not. Mm. Uh, Thank you for sitting down with me.
1: Thank you kindly.